Welcome to Australian Hiker, your online hiking resource. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 103 of the Australian Hiker podcast. In this week's episode, we're talking with Adrian Hayes, a British record-breaking adventurer, author, speaker, business coach, and documentary presenter. And in the past, Adrian has conquered Mount Everest, the North and South Poles, as well as kite skiing the length of Greenland, and has journeyed across the Arabian Desert by camel. Amidst a lifetime of adventure, he has set two Guinness World Records, and Adrian is now an internationally acclaimed keynote, motivational and professional speaker, uh, delivering speeches, seminars and programs worldwide. In today's episode, we go beyond the realms of this hiking podcast and are talking with Adrian about his latest book, One Man's Climb, which details his account of his first unsuccessful attempt and subsequent successful attempt at summiting K2, which is also known as the Mountaineers Mountain. While mountaineering is not directly related to the topic of hiking, the challenges that each of us face to achieve our personal goals, while nowhere near as dangerous as summiting K2, represent challenges that each of us must face. Now, we hope you enjoy this slightly off-topic episode. Uh, And at the end of the interview with Adrian, we're going to be talking a bit more in detail about his latest book, One Man's Climb. I'd like to give a big thanks to Adrian for making time to talk with me and to welcome him to the Australian Hiker Podcast. Okay, now, Adrian, first up, what drew you to such an adventurous life? Uh, that's a very good question, Tim. And uh, when I find the answer, I'll, uh, I'll write a book <laughs> on it. But um, look, the, the, the serious thing, I suppose it started as a kid and we grew up, and I'm not unique in this in any single way. You know, I grew up in a forest, and it was a life of adventure, climbing trees, you know, swimming down rivers, dens, all that stuff. But I think there was also the the lure of the polar world, of polar explorers, pictures of these guys on my wall, which nobody would have heard of, uh, and mountaineers, and that sort of real desire for exploration, a love of the wilderness and, and all these things. And, you know, so there's a the sort of superficial answer. But I think also probably the deeper answer was it was a bit of escape from not an unhappy childhood by any means, but a, a childhood that was perhaps struggling. I did struggle, and I suppose there's a little bit of a draw to the escape that that was um, that really sort of perhaps propelled a bit more. You know, I was so shy, so you know, subconscious, low self-esteem, and all this struggle. So that was my sort of little escape, I think. So um, is, is there some sort of family history or background with, uh, with mountaineering and adventuring, or is this something that you sort of uh, rebelled against your, your, your straight-laced uh, family? Yeah, my grandfather was, was an adventurer. He left school at 14 and spoke seven languages and traveled around the world. And, and my mother always used to say, I take a little bit after him. But certainly not in the family, the immediate family, father and uh, mother. We grew up in a hotel. I've got an older brother and a younger brother. And it was that, I think that 
escapism, maybe that conquesting achievement gene or that sort of wanting to to really explore the, the wilds of this earth that sort of drew, drew me to it. And I left school at 16 and literally started that life of venturing and did it for about six years, climbing mountains, rock climbing, skydiving, sub-acro, ocean sailing, every, kayaking, everything and anything all around the world. Uh, that's sort of uh, well, I'm not quite as extreme as what you are. It sort of it does sort of ring a ring an accord with 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 me a bit. I sort of tried everything and anything, and uh, um, you know, I, I sort of shift from adventure to adventure. But as I said, certainly not in the in the same sort of degree that you have. Now, um, well, yeah, it, I mean, it's interesting because most most sportsmen or ventures really focus on one sport, and that's what they become good at. And, the only problem is you become a jack of all trades and a master of none because you're doing everything. And I did, and not only just the adventuring sports, but rugby and soccer and and literally anything that went, I, I did. Um, and it's you know the the choosing the the uh, to be an adventurer uh, was that something that was conscious or that something that just you just sort of fell into? Well, the term of to be an adventurer, I mean, you could argue what it means, or even worse, an explorer, because none of us these days are explorers in the in the old Victorian sense. Most people who make a profession out of adventuring some sort of other, either on a company, they're guiding, they're doing, you know, little trips, things like that. You have to be exceptionally good to get sponsorship to be able to do these things as a profession, and only only the very best get to that sort of level. Uh, I, throughout my life, my adventuring life was satisfied the six years I did it uh, when I left school. Then I joined the Army, two years Special Forces and eight years as a Gurkha officer. And I was, you know, I, and, and the Army gave me everything I wanted to do. It was jumping out of aircraft, hacking through jungles, sport, adventure, the, the lot. And so it was only when I went after the Army and went into business and I was, I was sending Airbuses for quite a few years in the Middle East and, and Asia. But the adventuring had always, had always carried on. And it was, it was really getting to the world of personal development, self-help and all that world that really gave me the tools, the techniques, the values, all that things to say, look, this is something I'm passionate about. Let's give this a go to make this as a, as a profession, one of my professions, that is. Okay. Now, um, you're here in Australia at the moment, and I think um, – uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. You're promoting the uh, the new your new book, which is One Man's Climb, um, and that's your story of of summiting K2. Now, most people will know of Mount Everest as being the world's highest mountain, but uh, many people probably couldn't name K2 as being the world's second highest. Um, what's so special about K2, and, and why is it called the Mountaineers' Mountain? Yeah, most people more increasing number of people have heard about it, but most people who have would say, I've heard it's harder than Everest. Is that true? And the reality, of course, is it's, uh, some people say it's a totally different sport. I mean, it is way, way more of a tricky challenge. I mean, Everest has been summited now by five and a half thousand, nearly 6,000 people, K2, just a few hundred. And the reason about that uh, it's it's first it's so remote that's why it's kept its name K2 it never had a local ethnic name or anything it's a steep mountain it's steep from start to finish you've got to be a technical ice climber technical rock climber to get up there the weather's always appalling the snowfall conditions are appalling the rockfall dangers the avalanche dangers abound and 
put all those challenges together, it, it makes a, a momentous challenge, which most years nobody ever gets up there, whereas Everest, everyone, every year people get up there. And for those who do get up there, you've got a fair chance of uh, succumbing to fatalities on the way down. It's got a horrendous, horrendous uh, death to summit ratio throughout its whole diabolical and dire history. I mean, that's it's interesting you say that. I mean, I I dabbled and I and I and really in a, in a very very minor way in doing mountaineering a few years ago. Um, it terrified me. Um, well, you know, the, the most terrifying moment in my life is actually walking off the front of a glacier with crampons, and all I could think of is I'm going to slip and stab myself to death of these things if if I do go. Uh, and it's I'd always looked at K two thinking of if I ever. If I ever wanted to do something, Everest didn't really excite me at all. Uh, but K two was it was one of those things that I was always interested in. And and I, and as you, as you said, I'd heard a lot about people often summit successfully and then have accidents and 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 problems on the way down. And it's normally you tend to think getting up there is going to be the hard thing, uh, and getting down will be okay. Well, I'm up now. Now now comes the easy bit. But you, know, you you've just reinforced what what most people seem to think that it is. As you say, from all the way up and all the way down, you've you've got to be on your game. Yeah, and look, when you're going above eight thousand meters into the so-called death zone, and there's fourteen eight thousand meter peaks in the world, and that's the real McCoys. Um, the majority of fatality happen on the descent. You know, when you get to the top, you're only halfway there, and the reason is because you've been you're succumbing tiredness and absolute fatigue. You might have been going through five days to get up to the final ascent, then climbing through the night, 15, 16, 20 hours up to the top. You're coming down again. You're tired. You're without, starved of oxygen, fatigued, and you make mistakes. And you either succumb to falls or slips or misclips into ropes or out, you know, altitude gets you in the end, which is the, common, the most common thing. Why did you decide to summit um, or attempt to summit the K2 in 2013? What, what for you, what was the, the driving force behind this? Well, I considered it before because, uh, you know, the trouble is doing these big goals is you, you achieve the big goals around the world in all sorts of uh, terrain, you know, jungles and deserts and poles and mountains. And people always ask, you know, what's next, what's next? And in mountaineering terms, there is only one bigger thing than Everest. In fact, it's not a bigger thing in altitude-wise, but that is K2. But I'd always balked at it because high risk, high reward is one thing, you know, and, and that goes in all walks of life. You take a risk, but the rewards are great. The, the problem with K2 was it was high risk and low reward. And I, the low reward, I'm referring to the lack of summit successes. If it was high risk and you had a good chance of summiting at the same time, you, so basically you either die or you summit, that's one thing. But it, it, it always put me off. But... What happened, and I'm honest enough to admit this, was a, a crisis in my personal life, which involved my children. And it, basically, it was uh, a breakdown in contact with, with my children, uh, not voluntary, but uh, something, you know, for my ex-wife. And uh, that, you know, and I say this diplomatically as possible, but prevented from seeing my children. You know, when, when a crisis like this hits you, you you either turn to drink, drugs, or whatever, all these demons in life, or you go and bury yourself in something else. And I know many people, they bury themselves in their business or in fitness or something like this. And I took the, uh, it just, I just needed to say, I've got to go, right, K2 it is. And I just went for K2. Okay. Um, now, 
having not managed to summit in 2013, why did you decide again to attempt uh, and succeed this time to climb in 2014? Yeah, well, 2013, we had a disaster and uh, two of our fellow teammates uh, died. Uh, when we all came down, they went up. And the the problem for me personally, obviously, that was a catastrophe, disaster, and uh, we mourned their loss, two Kiwis. Um, for me itself, it was, you know, I came back from that mountain that year. I was food poisoning. I'd failed. Yes, we'd lived, but two guys, two of our friends had died, so it, it was a desperate thing. But I think something told me, gut instinct said, look, we never even gave this a shout. Uh, only got to camp two on the final push. And it just felt I needed to go back and fin- unfinished business, just need to go back. And again, the, the personal crisis was, was no worse. In fact, it was even worse in 2013 than 2012. So I took the call to go back, and, and I think the second year... I became so much in the zone. If I look back at it now, even 2013, I, I don't think I was perhaps as fit enough as I should have been. But 2014, it was just complete blink of mindset. Off we go and let's uh, let's go for this thing. Last attempt. But it would have been if I'd failed in in 2014. That would have been it. I wasn't going to try again. So you're saying you weren't fit enough. What is what is not being fit enough to summit uh, K2 mean for? For, for someone who's who's done who's summited Everest who's done the poles, what's what's the the next level on that K two requires that that you weren't ready for? Yeah, I mean, great question because I mean, many of your listeners would probably think you know, oh, that, that's that supreme fitness. I mean, it it was supreme fitness, but at the high standards you need to be on these mountains, I don't think it was quite enough in 2013. So, what does fitness mean? Uh, look, I keep a a high level of base fitness. I've always said that I, I do all sports and I keep them going. I run, I swim, I cycle, I go to the gym, I go to rock wall and I hike. Now that's the general base level fitness and that's before breakfast and then I get some real work done. But um, no, the, the key thing is specializing what you're going to be doing. So three months, four months out, blitzing it on whatever it is. And for mountains, it's it's going upstairs on a big building. I lived in Dubai for many years, up and down the stairs with uh, ankle weights, heavy pack, and it's getting in the mountains. And look, you don't have to climb K2 or Everest to know that even in the hiking world, uh, the only training that will train your downhill muscles, because your uphill muscles uh, can be trained by cycling to an extent and running, it's general cardio fitness stairs, but downhill muscles, the only way to train prepare yourself for going downhill is to go downhill on a mountain yeah. on or on a hill. Yeah. So, uh, and you'll say so your readers will, uh, your listeners will uh, relate to that per- perfectly. So you've got to go into a, a absolute blink of mindset, as I said. I must admit, I mean, I, um, as I've gotten older, the, uh, my knees coming downhill is, is what kills me uphill. I actually speed up when I go uphill from the flat. It's just, I get into the zone and I, and I, my wife complains that I, I leave her behind. Uh, but downhill, she just screams past me. My, you know, I've, I, I, I have to use tracking poles. Uh, I just find that my, yeah. my, my yeah. compression on my knees just they just don't cope like they used to when I was younger. One thing, uh, one one little tip from, from that, which your listeners might relate to. You see, I I do weight training and uh, doing squats, doing squats and leg presses. So basically, the premise is build up those quad muscles to protect the knees. Those quad muscles will take that downhill strain. So I, I, I've always used weight training as, as a guide, and I think uh, it's 
it does help on the downhill. Yeah, yeah, no, certainly, I, I can I can agree with that. Um, now, in attempting something like summiting K two, what's harder is is it the physical, the emotional, or the mental challenge, and why? Yeah, there's some people out there says not you know American term is nothing physical is ninety nine percent mental. Uh, I would say it's both. Look, you've got to be supremely fit. I mean, you're 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 going to be moving at altitude with technical climbing, and it's nothing like you know, Alex Honnell, free solo, um, you know, vertical walls without ropes and all the rest of it. But it's it's technical climbing with a heavy pack on and crampons and ice axes. And you've got to move fast enough to for the safety's sake. Now, I'll never be a greyhound on these things, but I do have an ability to keep going and going and going when everyone else starts to drop. So there's a physical side. But of course, you know, as a mental side, you're going into this into a challenge that is extremely dangerous and could kill you. So basically, let's you know, not beat about the bush. You're putting in yourself into the face of death. Now, when you look at circumstances across the world of, of any other sort of uh, situation, the only people who really do that are soldiers going into battle or people who have a terminal illness and they're told they have six months or a year to live or it could kill them. But of course, with those people, they don't have a choice. They're either told to go into battle or they're told they've got this terminal illness that could kill you. When you're going, when you're voluntarily pushing yourself into something that's so dangerous, you've got to be firstly very clear why you're doing this, why you're actually doing this challenge. And secondly, you've got to get into that zone, which is some people would say it's so selfish, but I would call self-preservation because if you take your eye off the ball and get distracted by anything, you know, it could cost you your life. So there's a huge mental conditioning and focus and discipline and concentration required both in the preparation and on the climb itself. All right. Now, in your book, One Man's Climb, you, you discuss personal challenges that, you, that have arisen for you. What, if anything, would you do differently having now done done the climb? Yeah, well, look, the, the book, which came, just if I can just mention a bit how this book came about, because there was no intention of writing a book on the journey of K2. I knew it was a powerful story, and it was actually the, the daughter of... Uh, the guys who died who t- just begged me to to, to uh, write this book. She was a publisher. So I started writing this book, and it had, you know, three pillars. It had the, the, the story of K2. It had the personal journey, and it had all these sort of lessons because my, my work is as a leadership team and personal coach, and I'm in that side of things. So I brought a whole load of stuff in there. Um, but to ask the question, what, what, if anything, I'd do differently, you know, uh, I would put it wide in the question. I think I'm glad I did it. You know, it is a selfish pursuit, high altitude mountaineering. Let's be honest about it. I would say it's self-preservation. But what happened on both years is I listened to the gut instinct. And one gut instinct told me to go down, and the second year told me to go back. It's when I look back on my wider life when I didn't listen to that gut instinct and went against it and mistakes happen. That's the sort of greatest learning. And I'd say, you know, everything that happened on K2, it's been the greatest learning. Both the, the expedition itself and writing the book has been a cathartic experience from the, the whole huge challenges I've had at the same time. And I suppose it, it's all worked out how it was meant to be, but it's sometimes very painful at the time. 
Okay. Uh, now, with an undertaking such as K2, that's well and truly beyond what most people can think of or, e or even imagine, um, or even probably most of, most of our abilities. But many of our listeners will have a bucket list uh, and they'll have a hike such as Everest Base Camp or Kilimanjaro or the long distance trails in, in Australia or around the world. What advice would you offer to the average person trying to achieve something that they may see as being beyond them? Well, I'd first of all say, ask them, you know, what, what do you try and achieve here? And, and really the second question, for the sake of what? Um, and I, I write about this in my book, firstly, that, that I do these things. I don't yeah, try and claim to say I'm climbing K2 to, to raise awareness of lung cancer or I'm walking to a pole to raise awareness of climate change or I'm climbing Everest to show people that they too can achieve their dreams. No, I do my worldly stuff. I speak on sustainability. I've got my own pro medical project in Nepal. That's my little bit for the world. I do my people's program people's leadership development, team development, passionate about that, I do that for people. But I do these things for myself. And I'm driven by this internal significance, because that's the reason we do these things, significance. But I'm driven by the internal, the you know, personal excellence, the personal goals, the, the self-worth, self-respect side of that. In the wider field now, and the many people have got that, we're being overtaken by the social media-inspired external significance like look at me look where i am recognition respect and all these things so i i think you know really passionate. just be very clear why you want to do something is it for your you know your personal self or is it to show on the bucket list you know what where i am on facebook or instagram whatever so that's the the, the first thing I, i'd say about anyone anyone wanting to climb kilimanjaro just why are you actually doing this but the the second thing i think a lot of these places have become very commercial and I always say to people, rather than climbing Kilimanjaro, uh, go to Nepal, go to Nepal, because Nepal's got 4,000-meter peaks, 5,000, 6,000s, got trails all over the place. And not only are you getting into the most spectacular terrain in the world in the Himalayas, but you're with a lovely, lovely, amazing people, amazing energy about the place, and you, you really do get away from it all. And that is one of the greatest things that I find going mountaineering. Frankly, the trek in to base camps is the great joy of these things. Everest base camp I've done 10 times or so, and it's an amazing, amazing trek. Even if there's quite a few hundred thousand on there, it's an amazing trek, and it just takes you into a different world. So I would always say to people, Nepal's got everything, and um, head there before you go to the commercially driven Kilimanjaro's, all these sort of things. <laughs> I must admit, we did uh, we did Bhutan in two thousand and twelve, and um, I'm, I'm not normally a mountain person, but I it was one of my most enjoyable trips, and it was quite funny. I've got a, a one of my best photos I've ever taken uh, of a, a, a mountain that doesn't have a name, and I and you know when I asked our guide what's the name of this mountain, they said, "Oh, it doesn't have one. It's 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 not high enough." Um, and, yeah, and they said there was just no, yeah, it was just this, this spectacular mountain. It's like yeah, no no name, sorry. Um, and yeah, and, and the whole concept of you know what you know we don't have mountains in Australia. We've just got large hills, really. And you know, when you start looking at uh, uh, the Himalayas or the Andes that have these things, as you say, that are sort of five, six, seven, eight thousand meters in height, it's sort of uh, it's it's hard to sort of relate to to call Kosciuszko a mountain. Um, yeah. Well, because there's a commercial world out there, and I'm, I'm sure you know many listeners will be tempted that there's a whole world out there to try the seven summits. And I think that's a bit of an overdone, overdone 
commercial thing. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people going doing these seven summits, and they'll try and tell you to go to Aconcagua in Argentina. Go to a, a mount a few hundred miles away or a few ten kilometers away, you know, you get a completely untouched thing. So I, I'm always one for, for going outside what commercial organizations want you to do. But Bhutan, uh, I went there for the first time last year, and quite simply, it is the most unique country I, I have ever been to. I cannot put you know, any other words on it. I've never been to a country like it. And I've been to about 110 countries in the world, and this one stands out above all. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's it's something I'd like to go back and do at some stage. But but so so many so many places to go, and it's like, do you go back to somewhere you've been, or do you go somewhere new? And that's that's always the hard question. Yeah, and it's funny the the, the Nepal side. See, I've been, I I was a Gurkha officer, and I, I obviously I speak Nepal Nepalese, and I've been there so many times. But I still love going back there, and there's something about that country that that just makes you everyone everyone who goes there and comes back comes back a little bit changed and I think that's why I recommend it so highly. And I believe um, just looking at some of the media that uh, over the last couple of weeks that, that Mustang seems to be op- being opened up a bit more now. They're, uh, they, I remember reading an article saying they're putting a road through there. Is that, is that right? Yeah, and that's the only problem in the polls that the roadheads are going further and further afield. So what used to be villages that you could only reach for three days, four days hike is now reached by a road. And it's changing things. It is changing things. I mean, I've got I had porters on one of my trips, and uh, you know they had their their smartphones because got GSM up there now. I've had about five years, but it was the ringtone on one of the porters' phones that got me. It it, it wasn't just a normal ringtone. It was Justin Bieber. <laughs> so I thought Justin Bieber, even up in the wilds of Nepal, you know what is the world coming to? But there you go. Um, that's progress. But look, you know we've we've got to take the rough with the smooth and. Uh, I sometimes think it's all very well. We want, you know, primitive peoples to still be living in tents and tepees and wilderness so we can take the pictures and show them on Facebook we're in the wilds. You know, these people want to improve their standard of living as well. So we've just got to, it's, it's inevitable, unfortunately. All right. Now, what advice would you give from a planning perspective that would, that would help um, people looking at achieving their own adventure to have the best chance of success? Yeah, look, Planning and preparation, and obviously there's the fitness side, and we've, we've touched into that. But I think it's, on my side, it's some of the equipment, and it's the small little things that can make the difference. I've got a, a backpack with uh, little pockets on it on the waist strap. And that little pocket, I've got a little stuff sack, and it's got my essential supplies in. Sun cream, a little bit of grease, some zinc oxide tape, cause I, and some... Uh, ibuprofen, you know, things like that. So yeah. little things like that. For instance, so when you get a blister, which, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're climbing K2 or doing a hike, a blister's a, you know, huge nuisance. Um, and, you know, there's two options. One of them is you grease. You grease the sort of the hot spot comes up. So I've got a little tub of Vaseline or something there in that, in that little stuff. So you grease it. But if it gets beyond that, it means drying that off and putting zinc oxide tape on, second skin. And, Little things like that can make the difference between a successful trip and a not and a and a failure. So you know, it's, it's sometimes those little things. I've got a little pouch on my on my shoulder straps which I put my camera in. So that camera is handy, comes out in and out just like that. You know, the 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 sun cream again, things like this. These are the real the little things that can make a, a huge difference to a trip, however extreme.
I must admit, I uh, I did the Ben Mormon track last year, and I discovered foot taping, and without that, I wouldn't have been able to finish. It sort of I, I always tend to get hot spots on the balls of my feet, and the the taping made such a huge difference. It was uh, it was life changing from my perspective. Yeah, and it's unfortunate a lot of the zinc oxide tape you get in some uh, chemists don't have the adhesive quality. I go to a hospital get some special stuff, so there's different types again. But you you know they are. They are lifesavers, lifesavers. All right. Now, one final question. Um, given the opportunity, if you had to start all over again from scratch, what would you change? I would say that, well, if I had the tools, the techniques, the mantras, the models, the concepts, all this stuff of the personal development world, which is what I got into about 20 years ago, I wouldn't have wasted my time doing things I didn't want to do early in my life. Um, follow your dreams is a bit of an overdone statement from, from speakers and things like this, but I would have certainly got in touch with uh, the inner stuff, the work, and it probably would have given me the self-belief and confidence to actually go for this stuff when I was much younger, which I did, of course. But, um, yeah, there's, you know, there's, none of us can ever do enough inner work, and I'd say that, and I think I would have just followed what my values are, then that's, you know, you've got to do this work to know what, what drives you. Because the simple truth is, if you know your values, if you set a goal that's in line with your values, you'll probably succeed. If you set a goal that's out of line with your values, you'll probably fail. And all I've done over the last 20 years is really follow goals that are completely in line with who I am, my values, which is achievement, adventure, freedom, nature, beauty, people. And uh, they've done it. But of course, if I'd known that, if I saw that at school, I would have um, done this from when I was 16 and uh, really gone for it. I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? It's sort of, uh, you, you learn these things as you go through life and you get to sort of uh, the, 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 the second half of your life and thinking, I wish I had have known that 20 years ago. Um, but I suppose it's something we, you know, yeah. the, the learning is just the, the way we have to go through. Well, okay. yeah, I mean, look, life is for learning, uh, Tim, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, and I suppose that's one of the greatest things of doing these adventures or whatever it is, or just putting yourself into challenges. It's the challenges that define who we are as people. And so uh, it's, all, it's all part of the rich experience of life, the tapestry of life. So as I said at the start of this episode, this is slightly off topic. Um, but I think from our perspective, one of the reasons I wanted to go through an interview, Adrian, was that in his case, he was talking about climbing K2 and the, and the book uh, One Man's Climb really is about that journey. For most of us, that's going to be something that probably we never do. Um, but I think that we all have our own goals in our life. Uh, and for, for most of us, we might say, oh, look, I don't know if I can do this. Um, you know, it seems beyond what I'm capable of, um, you know, whether it be a long distance hike or a, uh, um, uh, even just a shorter hike, but just something that's outside what we consider to be the normal and, and how you can go about getting over your worries and your fears and, and, and maybe achieving something you never thought that you were able to do. Yeah, I think that was really great. And I think the thing for me is um, you have to have your own reason and um, uh, that that was made clear um, a number of times along the way that you need to, to really understand whatever it is that you're going to do, wherever it is in life, 
um, if it's if it's different, if it's um, slightly challenging, if it's a little bit offbeat, uh, you need to really understand why you're going to do it um, because you have to reach back into that um, when it gets tough. Um, so, you know, we are talking about things that perhaps – you know, they don't have to be mountaineering and uh, Tim mentioned that we'd given it a go. Uh, there's a reason why we're not mountaineers. <laughs> That's a bit out there for us. Um, but, you know, there are lots of things that we experience uh, in day-to-day life when we're hiking in the bush, when we're, um, you know, experiencing something new that we really need the confidence of, you know, that thought of why am I here? and really being able to articulate that to get yourself through it. Another thing Adrian mentioned as well, when I asked him about his his reason for doing these climbs, he talked about um, you know, a crisis in his personal life and you know, he, he, he was looking for a goal. And in this case, you know, he wanted to bury himself in that goal. Uh, and I tend to be a bit like that. I tend to be a, an all or nothing sort of person. Uh, when I decide to do something, um, I, I'm a strong believer that you are more than capable of delivering 110. Um, percent uh, And you know, if I do a, a big hike or a, a long distance hike, it becomes all consuming. Uh, and I'm very grateful that I have a very understanding wife on that one. Well, you know, I think this is an interesting one because I mean, I think his circumstances were a little bit, um, little bit different, and he did talk about you know burying himself in the goal. Um, I think for most of us, we we have to be engaged with a lot of things and there are a lot of things that are important and that we wouldn't want to uh, deprioritize, if you like, to make one thing uh, more important than others. And, and Tim is the kind of person who does that all the time, <laughs> let me tell you. Um, so, some of us try and uh, do everything really, really well. Um rather than one thing incredibly exceptional. So, um, you know, I think it just depends on what's important to you. Um, and there's there's nothing better than having a bunch of people supporting you and cheering you on and making it easier. So, you know, you do have to think about them uh, in the background and, and prioritise them too. So... You know, we are talking about extreme kind of ex- experiences and extreme uh, examples here. But for most of us, uh, there's a whole bunch of people that are there with us and important to us and we need to, you know, engage with that as well. I definitely agree with that. Um, the other thing that Adrian, Adrian mentioned throughout the uh, the interview was um, being in the zone Um and also the talking about having a good level of base fitness. And I think uh, for those of you that are into long distance hiking or through hiking and follow a lot of the number of the blogs in the states, they talk about those sort of hikes being mostly mental. Uh, and while there's a physical component, it's the mental component that often tends to stop people doing it. Um, and I think, as Adrian said, it's very much both. Um, I am reasonably uh, physically fit. Um, when I do do something, I also tend to mentally get in the zone as well. Uh, and that's something I've mentioned on previous podcasts. When I'm hiking by myself, I am in the zone. 
I'm very focused on what I'm doing as far as making myself uh, safe, making sure I'm not treading on snakes or anything like that. But I'm just, I can, I can go into my own mind and my body just goes into autopilot. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because um, for me, uh, I know you put a lot of effort and a lot of time into planning. Um, I, I need to know what the plan looks like. I don't need to have done the plan. <laughs> and and this is a really interesting thing because um, I ask particular questions of Tim when we're heading off to do something and uh, I get lots of detailed answers and really I just don't want all that detail. All I want is the answer to the question that I've actually asked. And I, ha- I do. I develop this picture in my head. Um, about what it's going to look like. And that for me is the mental preparation and um, it's it's realistic um, and, you know, it. Uh, there's also a bit of, you know, what might go wrong in there, so a bit of that kind of mental preparation. Um, but I do, I do, you know, this comes back to the importance bit, you know, why you're doing this and your reason um, for doing it. Uh, I think sometimes we meet a lot of people who get started on long hikes and and uh, they haven't done a lot of physical preparation. That that's fine. They can go as you know at their own pace, and we we always suggest that. But I also do think a bit of physical preparation will make it a little bit more e- enjoyable for you, and also um, prevent unnecessary injury. Let me just put it that way. I think that's that's the way. It's uh, there's there's two fairly well known hikes in the Asia Pacific region. One is the Overland Track, and one is uh, Kokoda in in Papua New Guinea. Um, I used to be involved uh, work wise with Kokoda uh, on a very small scale, I must admit. But um, uh, one of the comments from the the guys up in PNG was that for a lot of people, it's like, oh, I'm going to go and do Kokoda in two weeks' time. I better do some walking and I better start getting my gear together. And that's very much the norm for that sort of hike. The overland track is very much the same where people won't necessarily, you know, it's it's not a huge length trail, it's 65 kilometres, but for someone that's new to hiking, doesn't have much hiking experience, it's probably more than they've ever done and it's a bit of a culture shock going up and down the hills. Uh, Kokoda, uh, the humidity is what tends to knock people around. They're just not used to hiking in that, that hot, uh, wet environment. So... Um, as Adrian said, you know, you've got to have that mindset to be able to say, yep, I can do this and I'm, I'm comfortable doing it, but have the physical ability to back you up. And you might not have to be super fit, um, but Adrian did talk about having good base level of fit and doing a number of different activities. And as he got closer to um, particularly his goals, he was focusing on what uh, the specific activity was that he was doing. So in this case with K2, it was very much getting into mountain climbing uh, because that's the, the thing that really trains your body. So for us as hikers, uh, going through and, yes, doing weight training and cycling and swimming and all that sort of stuff, but you need to do some training uh, hiking. There's nothing like hiking to prepare yourself for hiking, hey. And, and that's certainly <laughs> something I've been doing over the last few weeks as I lead into my upcoming Easter hike. Um, which I'll uh, which I'll be talking about in a few episodes, um, and it's uh, 
for me, it's a bit of an extreme, uh, one of my extreme hikes of the year. And um, I've been throwing myself into the physical fitness side of things just to make sure that I stand the best chance of succeeding. Um, and the final thing I suppose that Adrian mentioned was that particularly in relation to what he was doing, it's a selfish pursuit. And I think for a number of us, uh, and me included, as I mentioned, um, I, I do have a very understanding partner. Um, that Just keep uh, saying that. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, when I disappear for five weeks to do a hike, and I do have some hikes over the next three or four years that are 12 to 16 weeks long. Um, and... Um, I'm still in negotiation over when and how I it's do this. It's really interesting. You looked at me to see it to see how I would react <laughs> because uh, this is probably part of that uh, conversation around. So, what are you going to be doing when, and what does that look like, Tim? So, this is me preparing myself <laughs> for you doing those sorts of hikes. Uh, I tend to plan two years out, so we're still a few. We're still not quite there yet. Okay, <laughs> um, now. As I mentioned in this interview, one of the reasons that I was talking to Adrian was that he's just released his new book, One Man's Climb. It's about his journey on K2, both in the first unsuccessful attempt and then his successful attempt. For me, I don't tend to be into adventure-type books, but I did find this to be quite an enjoyable read. And the comment that that Adrian made to me outside of um, uh, the interview was that uh, people who are not into climbing, not into adventure, read this book and said, yes, it was really enjoyable. And that's probably a good um, a good uh, review by the general public, if you like, if, it's, if it, it makes people who are non-adventure-based uh, uh, activity people enjoy reading it, it's a good book. Yeah, look, I think what it says is that there's something in there for everybody and, um, you know, even even though the title is, is uh, uh, specific to K2, I don't think, you, you know, if you've got an interest, if you've enjoyed the, the interview, um, check out the book too because I think you'll get something out of that as well. So if you go to the show notes for this episode on our website, uh, you'll find that um, we've got links to Adrian's website and social media, uh, a link to the book review. And if you're listening to this podcast, the book book review will be up online uh, at the time you're listening. Um, And it's also available um, uh, uh, to to purchase if you're interested in, in this type of a read. So we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Next week, we're back to our regular episodes, um, and I'm going, um, again, we're still back to hiking, but in this case, we're talking about the history of national parks and trails in Australia. Uh, as some of you might be aware, I've got an interest in landscape architecture and heritage, particularly around hiking trails. Uh, so I just want to go through and talk about how we've gotten where we are as far as Australia's trail systems and national parks. Okay, so as always, you can listen to this episode at www.australianhiker.com.au through SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, and a number of other podcatchers as well. If you have the chance, please go through and give us a five-star rating on iTunes to help get the message out there. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. That's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me.